If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 20, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through 18 this morning. Luke 20, verses 9 through 18. Um, at Thanksgiving this past year, we were with um, Andrew's family, and my brother-in-law had a book that he had gotten from the library that he couldn't put down. The title of the book was What If? And it was all these random scientific questions. Some of you have seen this book that people had sent to this gentleman who's extremely smart, um, hypothetical things that probably will never happen. Um, trying to think what would happen. So here's two examples. One in the book is what would happen if everyone on earth stood as close to each other as they could and jumped, everyone landing on the ground at the same instant. And so this man thinks about the scientific ramifications of that and explains it through words and stick figures um, in this book. How about this one? What if a rainstorm dropped all of its water in a single giant drop? That's a great question. Um, and if you want to know the answer, you can look up this book, What If? Um, I want to ask a what if question uh, this morning. And it's it's not a silly what if question. It's a very important what if question. It's much more important than any of these. And it's something that we can find the answer to um, in God's Word. We talked last week about authority and our natural sinful inclination to reject any and all authority. We don't want anyone reigning over us. We want to be king ourselves. Uh, we don't want to admit our failure to be able to rule ourselves. We, we, we fear others more than we fear God. And we saw as we looked in, in Luke uh, 20 how the religious, the religious leaders, the scribes, and uh, the, the teachers of the law, and the, uh, the elders, and, and the priests, how they were talking to Jesus and they didn't like the authority that he was proclaiming. And, and we saw how they rejected God's authority. They chose to, to spurn God's rule over their life. They wanted to be in control. And, and on the heels of that inter- interaction, we come to Luke 20, verses 9 through 18. And it's the last parable in the book of Luke. This is the last time that Jesus will speak in parables. And in this parable, he shows... Um, the past rejection of God's authority throughout the history of Israel. He shows this present rejection of his authority, of the authority of Jesus. And he talks about the, the future results of people rejecting the authority of God. It's sort of a survey of attitudes towards the, the authority of God in our lives and what happens as a result of rejecting the authority of God. And so that's kind of the what if question I want to ask. It's this. What will happen if we reject the authority of Jesus. What will happen if we reject the authority of Jesus? Because we establish that he is an authority, and, and and he sort of, we see people rejecting his authority. We, we saw what it would look like to have his authority in our lives. What's going to happen if we reject his authority? If we refuse to allow Christ to be king, if we refuse to submit to the authority that Jesus rightfully has on our lives, what's going to happen? And as we think about that question, I think there's a, there's a warning for sure that we need to listen to, but there's also this amazing grace that we can rejoice in. And so my hope is that that as we talk about this question, what will happen if we reject the authority of Jesus, that we'll see how foolish it is to reject the rule of Christ in our lives, but but we'll also see the the beauty of what God has done through Christ in providing salvation. 
So, so let's look at this parable. Luke 20, beginning in verse 9. It says, And he, Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they, the crowd, heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What will happen if we reject the authority of Jesus? I think this parable answers that question for us, and I want us to think through that. Just notice first the, the kind of the story that's going on here. Um, Jesus spoke in parables throughout his his ministry. You remember that a, a parable, any parable, is a, it's a story that's rooted in the world but has a, a deeper meaning to the hearers. So it's some people say it's a it's a um, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So there's something deeper going on here than just Jesus telling a story. Sometimes the meaning of a parable is, is kind of hard to understand, and Jesus needs to explain it. Um, even the disciples had sometimes had a hard time understanding parables, but this one here is is crystal clear actually. And and, and it says in verse 19 of this chapter, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he told this parable against them. They clearly understood. This parable and everyone who read, who heard it that day clearly understood what the point was. And so we want to be very clear about, about what it is. Jesus in a sense holds up a mirror to his hearers and lets them see how they are acting. Stories have a way of doing that, you know. You read a story and you start to see yourself in it in a way that you don't see in other ways if someone says something to you. So as we look at this parable, we can see that the different elements of the story and how they correspond to situations or to Individuals. Not every parable works that way, but this one clearly does. And so we find first a man who planted a vineyard. So there's a, a man who is the owner of this vineyard. He's the, he's the builder. He's he's the maker. He's the creator of this vineyard. Um, and in this parable, the man who planted the vineyard is God. God has has planted a vineyard. He is he has created. He is the the source of this vineyard. The vineyard needs to be something. What is the vineyard? Specifically in this passage, the vineyard is Israel. It's God's chosen people descended from Abraham, ethnic Israel. Now, we know that because the Old Testament often talks about it, and also because of the reaction of the crowd, but the clearest example is back in Isaiah chapter 5, 
Isaiah chapter 5, it says in verse 7 there, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So often the vineyard refers to the people of Israel. We know that specifically here. And so God is the owner of the vineyard. He's the one that has made it. He has created this nation of Israel, his chosen people. He's made his people. It says then that there are tenants. He has taken the vineyard. He has, God has taken Israel and lent it out to tenants. Who are the tenants? The tenants are the leaders in Israel, the teachers. Uh, maybe this group that we saw earlier, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men. It's the people that are supposed to take care of Israel. They're supposed to make sure that Israel is doing what it's supposed to do and following God in the way that, that it is supposed to. And so we have this picture of the of God who has created Israel and he's put the the he's put the the chief priests the scribes the leaders of Israel in charge of caring for this vineyard and seeing it produce fruit i think the fruit is maybe more general it's probably just referring to faithfulness to god that they would be doing what god has called them to do so that's what god wants and that's what the, these leaders are supposed to lead the people of Israel into it says here that the that the owner, the man who planted the vineyard, went into another country for a long while. I don't think that has to do with God leaving his people, but rather that he has let the leaders take control and, and they are to, to be good stewards of, of his people and to care for them well. And then we have these servants. So the story goes on, it sets the scene, and there's a time later, there's a time between verse 9 and 10, when the time comes that this the owner of the vineyard, sends out servants to the tenants to gather some of the fruit, to see the fruit of this land. The servants here represent the prophets. They represent the word of God that came to Israel and to the leaders of Israel throughout their history. We have three here. I don't think there's any specific way that we would need to break those out and, and say, well, the first servant is the law and the second servant is the prophet. I mean, we could do that, but I don't think that's the, the point. It's rather that the word of God has come to the leaders of Israel and he has, he has called them to bring forth fruit. So hopefully that's clear. That's, we're kind of going back. It was very clear to them in that day, and, and yet it's a little bit hard for us to totally understand, but we think about God who has a specific people He's created them. He's put people in charge of them to take care of them, to make sure that they're walking in the way that they're supposed to, that they're following his laws. And the prophets come in to speak to those who are in charge and, and to call them to account, to say, are you leading God's people in the way that they are supposed to be led? I think broader we can think, we think specifically about Israel, but we can also think about that, that God has created all things and all people. Just as he rules over Israel, he is also rules over all of us. So I don't know, there may be someone here who is ethnically Jewish, but for the most part we are not. But God still has a claim over all of our lives because he's the creator. Just as the the planter of the vineyard says, this is my vineyard, God says, I created this world and I created you. And I have a claim on your life. I have authority over you. I mean, it's something that we often forget, that God has authority over us. So the, the first thing I want to note as we go through this and as we think about it is the, the pride of rejecting God's rightful authority. Because as we read this through the story, that's what we're going to see, the pride of rejecting God's rightful 
authority. What, what happens in the story with these servants, these prophets that come in? The, the prophets, the, the, the servants show up. They say to the tenants, we want some of the fruit of the vineyard. And what do the tenants do? The tenants beat them and send them away with nothing. I mean, that's a pretty bold thing to do, isn't it? Let's just try to think about it maybe in a different circumstance since not many of us plant vineyards. But maybe you own a home. And you're going on a long vacation. Maybe let's say you're going away for three months. You're going on a world cruise, you know. And so you need someone to. <laughs> Trevor's just elbowed Carolyn. Let's go on a world cruise. <laughs> I saw that. That was awesome. Oh, okay, <laughs> they're going on a on a on a. You're going on a world cruise, but you're leaving your house. You're gonna be gone for three months, and so you need someone to sort of house it. So you put them in charge of your house, and you say you can stay here, and you know. Feel free to use the kitchen and, and, and the bathroom and the refrigerator and all that stuff, and we'll be back in, in three months. And so you leave for three months, and you come back to your house. Well, you it takes you a while. You don't realize it's your house because it's been repainted. And that, that tree that you loved in the front yard has been chopped down. And you go to the front door, and you go to put your key in the lock, and it, it doesn't work because they changed someone changed the locks. And so you bang on the door, and the person eventually comes, and you step into your house to realize that all your furniture is gone. The walls are all different colors, and they actually have rented out all the rooms to different people that are living in your house. And they're—I mean, can you imagine? What would you say? Say so this isn't your house. You were—you were supposed to take care of the house, but it's not your house. You—you you you can't take this kind of authority. I mean, imagine the audacity of these tenants. It's staggering. What did they have that they hadn't been given? Nothing. It's God's vineyard. It's, it's, it's the owner's vineyard. And he comes and says, I want some fruit. And they beat the, the servants and send them away. Who do these guys think that they are? That was the question that they were asking Jesus, remember. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are having this kind of authority? And that's in a sense how these tenants are. That, well, who does the owner of the vineyard think he is to come and ask for fruit from his vineyard that he owns, that he's paying us to take care of? I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd, and yet that's what the leaders of Israel are acting like. They were to lead the people of God in the way that God had commanded, and instead they were rejecting God's messengers as he sent them to them. To them. They had completely lost their senses. And, and in pride, they had, their minds had just been poisoned. Any outside observer, like we can look at this situation and say that they have no right to do what they are doing. But in that situation, they think that they have every right to act that the way the way that they are. They have rejected the authority of the owner. They have rejected the authority of God. What about us? How do we think about authority? How do we think about the authority of God? God's rule and reign over all people. We may not be leaders, some of us, but we are all under the authority of God. Our very existence speak to the, speaks to the fact that we are under God's authority. He's the creator of all things, and so he has authority over all people. And yet we are born rebelling against that authority. We want nothing to do with God. We naturally reject God. We reject his word and what he tells us to do through the scriptures. If we're in Christ, we have a a different kind of authority over us. Because Christ has bought us. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price, and Christ is supposed to be king of our lives. Do we listen to his word? I think that's the key thing with these these servants. They they represent the prophets. They represent the word of God. Do we submit to the word of God? 
Or do we assume that we know better for our lives? Do we listen to the warnings of God? Do we walk in the way that he tells us to? Do we submit to the word of God as it's, as it's proclaimed? Do we submit to the word of God as, as brothers and sisters in Christ help us to see what it says? Or do we think we have things figured out? Notice that. So we see that just this pride, the pride of, of these tenants and the pride in our own hearts that rejects God's rightful authority over all of us. We, we push back against that. We don't want anyone reigning over us. And we push back against it, and it is such foolishness. It doesn't make any sense, but for some reason we get poisoned by pride, and we think that we have a right to do what we want to do with our lives. Well, what do you see in verse 13? So the three servants are sent. The the punishment that, that they give, that, that the tenants beat the servants with, it, it increases each time. You notice that? The first one, they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. The second one, they treat him shamefully and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And the third one, they wound and throw out. So the owner of the vineyard in verse 13 asks himself a question. He says, what shall I do? What do I do? Now, if I'm giving advice to this guy, I say, well, don't send anyone else because we know what's going to happen. Don't send any more servants, for sure. In fact, I'd send an army, or at least I'd send a lawyer or something, right? Let's take care of this situation. You need to exercise your authority. What should I do? But what we see instead is the the persistence of God's mercy. Let's think about that. The persistence of God's mercy. What does the owner do? How does he answer his question? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Here's another character in our story, isn't it? It's a son. And if the owner of the vineyard is God, then who is the son? The son is is Jesus. It's the beloved son of God. Jesus, the only son of God, loved by his father. And God called out to his people time after time through the prophets, and they rejected them, they spurned them, they beat them, they killed them. And what is God's response? God's response is not to abandon his people. His response is not to destroy his people. His response is to give the greatest gift that he could ever give, to show the most grace that he possibly could, and he sends his son. He doesn't send an army to destroy them. He sends a Savior to deliver them. Think about the persistence of God's grace. We should rejoice in this. We should rejoice in the mercy and the patience of God. He doesn't give us what we deserve. What do these guys deserve? (laughs) We'll see what they deserve later. But in the interim here, he doesn't give them what they deserve. He doesn't lash out in anger. He gives more and more and more grace. I think the point of the three is not to try and pinpoint what they are, but rather to say, God is patient. God is patient. God is patient. He's filled with mercy. He's persistent in it. I was reminded as I was studying this of the scene from from Les Miserables. Maybe you've seen the movie or some of you have maybe even better than me, you read the book. But uh, 
the the main character Jean Valjean he's a criminal at the beginning and he he's shown grace he's released after prison he's rejected by everyone when he comes out of prison no one will take him in no one will give him a job no one will help him but this bishop takes him in gives him a place to stay feeds him and provides grace to him and Valjean repays the bishop by in the middle of the night stealing all of the man's silver and taking off well the authorities catch Verjean, and they bring him back to the bishop. And what does the bishop do? The bishop, the, the, the authorities reveal that, that Verjean had stolen all of this silver. And the bishop says, yes, that's, that's right. I gave him those things. And then he scolds Verjean in front of the authorities and says, you forgot to take these candlesticks as well. And he gives him more grace. Isn't that the picture of God to us? This is the mercy of God. We respond to his grace. He shows us grace all of our lives. We respond to it by rejecting his authority. And what does he do? He continues to give more and more and more grace. He gives us his son. Think about applying this. And I I just was thinking that, that part of the message is there is mercy left for you. There's, there's, there's more mercy. God is persistent in his mercy. No matter how much you have rejected God, if you are here today, today is a day of grace. It's a day of mercy. It's a day of salvation. It's a day of forgiveness. Whether you are in Christ or you are far from Christ. If, you, if you've never put your faith in Christ, then, then he is calling to you. He's saying, listen, I, I am the king. I have created you. I have made you for my glory. And you have rejected that and you've chosen sin and you are dying in your sin and I'm sending you my son to be your savior. He wants to show mercy. He wants to show forgiveness. There's others of us who are believers and this week we have spurned the authority of God. We have not lived under the authority of Jesus like we are called to. And and if we repent and believe, you know what God shows us? Mercy. More and more mercy. That's who he is. He is a God of persistent mercy. And if that's who God is, then thinking again about application, do we reflect God in that way? Do we reflect the mercy of God that we see displayed here? A mercy that's over and over and over again? Are we as patient as God is? Is our life marked by persistent mercy towards those who reject us? Those who reject even the gospel? I can come up with a lot of yeah, but situations. Yeah, but sometimes people need. Yeah, but I could. I don't see warrant for that right here, right now. We need to have wisdom. But we also need to default to mercy, to patience towards those who reject us. Have I been patient and merciful towards my children this week? Have you been patient and merciful towards your your spouse. Have you been patient and merciful towards your co-workers? Towards that one co-worker? <laughs> Have you been patient and merciful in the grocery store? Have you been patient and merciful with your neighbor? Have you been patient and merciful with that guy driving in front of you? Do we show patience? Do we show mercy like God? There's so many situations where we could be quick to judge. But let's reflect the mercy and the patience of God because that's what he's shown to us. And it, it it's not easy, is it? It's not easy because what do they do here? How do the tenants respond? 
to mercy. He says, I'll send my son, my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that we, that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. They respond with more pride and more selfishness and more wickedness. They seek to dethrone the owner by destroying his son. And so the violence against the messengers culminates. It's getting worse and worse and worse, and it culminates with them throwing the son out of the vineyard and killing him. This is a picture of our hearts apart from Christ, isn't it? That that's what we want to do to anyone who comes to rule over us. We say, let's kill him. I don't need mercy. I don't need rule. I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. I will live in my sin and do what I want to do until God opens our hearts to see our need of the Son. And so another question arises in verse 15. The first question was one that was on the lips of the owner of the vineyard. The next question is a question that Jesus poses to the crowd and he poses to us. It's there at the end of verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? What a question. What will the owner do now? What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Part of the question is, what choice does he have? I mean, he's given the most grace that he could possibly give in the Son. What else can he give? There is nothing else that he can give. What choice does he have? And, And if he judges, can anyone accuse him of impatience? Could anyone accuse this guy of impatience? Could anyone confuse, could, can, could, could anyone accuse him of a lack of mercy or of being unjustified if he comes and he judges? Could anyone say that he has a short fuse? Could any, anyone say that, that his punishment is too harsh? Could anyone say that he did something wrong? No one. No one could say that the owner of the vineyard does something wrong. I think that Jesus is showing the people of Israel, the leaders and the people at large, that the judgment of God for rejecting the Son is completely just and fair. He's showing us that God's wrath against sinners is not unjustified, but rather it comes after opportunity, after opportunity, after opportunity for mercy and grace and forgiveness is given. And this is not just the God of the Old Test of the New Testament. This is the God of the Old Testament too. People seem to think that God has a short fuse in the Old Testament and then he's got a long fuse in the New Testament. That is not true. When you look even at the destruction of the Canaanites, where Joshua and the people of Israel go in and destroy everyone, it was after hundreds of years of patience towards people who rejected God and and sacrificed their children to false gods. And God continued to show mercy and mercy and mercy until he had done everything that he could. No one can say that God has acted rashly. No one can accuse God of being some two-year-old throwing a temper tantrum because someone has done something against him. God has shown mercy beyond our comprehension, but there is a time when destruction comes. We all know this. I mean, as a parent, I love mercy. I love to show mercy to my kids. But there's a time when the mercy has to run out and there has to be punishment. Maybe at your workplace, you know, maybe you are ahead, you're over top of some people. And you can show patience and you can show mercy to those that are there. 
when maybe they're learning the job or, or things aren't going as well. But there comes a time when if it doesn't happen, as much as you don't maybe desire it, that they need to be let go. There's all these circumstances where we can show mercy, we can show patience, we can show grace, and yet there's a time when justice has to be done. And so we've seen the, the, the pride of rejecting Christ. We've seen the persistence of the mercy of God. Just think finally about this, the punishment of God. The punishment of God that brings peace. The punishment of God that brings peace. So destruction comes, doesn't it? What's the answer to the question? What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Verse 16. He will come and destroy those tenants. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. The destruction of the tenants, most every commentator says that this refers to the destruction of Jerusalem that's going to come about 40 years later in AD 70 when when Jerusalem is overtaken and the temple is destroyed. The The leaders of Israel have rejected God and so God is rejecting them. God comes, he destroys Jerusalem, he destroys the temple. And in destroying the temple, he opens up a a new door for new tenants, for new people to come into the vineyard. Notice that the punishment of God on some brings peace for others. It says he will destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So the opportunity for others to know the blessing of God, to know the promise of God, is opened up through his rejection of the unbelieving leaders in Israel. That the way that others can come in is because some have been thrown out. That's what it says, isn't it? He will throw them out and let others in. And who's welcomed in? It's the Gentiles. The Gentiles are welcomed in. Those who were not ethnically descendants from Abraham, those who had not been given the promises in the Old Testament, are now said that they can come in and they can know the blessings of God. We know that that's what it means because of the response of the crowd. He says he's going to give the vineyard to others. Well, who's the others? It's got to be the Gentiles because when they heard this, you know what they said? Surely not. You know Paul's phrase where he says, God forbid, Romans 6? This is the only instance outside of the writings of Paul's where that phrase is used. God forbid is what they say. Don't do that. May it never be that the Gentiles would be welcomed in. This can't be. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't flinch, does he? He looks directly at them. I love that. You can see that, can't you? He looks directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The destruction of the sun brings the destruction of the tenants and the destruction of the temple. And the destruction of the sun opens the door for blessing to the Gentiles. Think about the temple being destroyed, you know. What what has Jesus just done? He comes into Jerusalem, what's the first place he goes? Goes to the temple, and what does he do? Cleans it out. What is he cleaning out? He's cleaning out the court of the Gentiles. It had become a marketplace. And he said, My house is to be a, a house of prayer for who? For all nations. So he clears out the temple. He says, Everyone should be able to come to my house and pray. And then he comes and he, and, and when he dies, what happens in the temple? The curtain is torn in two from the top to the bottom. The the curtain that separated into the Holy of Holies is torn in two from top to bottom. And Jesus opens up the curtain to provide a way for all people 
to come to God. He opens it up by the curtain of his flesh. He dies and he tears that curtain. And then he predicts this destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. He's going to destroy that temple. But in tearing down the temple and in casting out others, he is building something new and he's bringing something in. He's building something new upon himself. His work, what he is doing. Because who is he? He is the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected. The son that the builders rejected, the son that the, that the tenants killed and threw out has become what? The cornerstone, the capstone. The, he is the foundation of everything. He is the one upon which everything else is now being built and has always been built. He's the cornerstone of a new building, a new house, a new temple. He destroys the old temple and he becomes the cornerstone of a new temple. And what is the new temple? The new temple is us. The new temple is us as individuals, that the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. And the new temple is the church. We saw that in that passage that, that Henry read in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones. And you're being built upon as a, being built upon as a spiritual house to be what? a royal, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. He's building something new. Even the vineyard is new. In Romans chapter 11, God talks about a vineyard, a vine, And branches are broken off of that vine. The natural branches are broken off of that vine. Speaking of the rejection of Israel. They are broken off of that natural vine and they are thrown away. And who gets in? The Gentiles. Wild olive branches are grafted in. They're cut into the branch and given the life that God wants to give. And yet there's still hope for these natural branches to be grafted back into the vine. But it's not going to happen through sacrifices in the temple. It's not going to be because of physical lineage to Abraham. It's not going to be because of good deeds. They must come by faith just as everyone else. The tenants were finally rejected because they rejected the son. And they were destroyed because they destroyed the son. But they opened up the way for others to come in. The punishment of them has brought the opportunity for peace to the Gentiles, to you and to me. We can come in now. But I think there's something deeper, and I I just want us to think on this as we close. There's a deeper way that the punishment of some brings peace for others, and it's because this. The punishment of the one man, Jesus, brings peace for all. So the destruction of Jesus, the punishment of Jesus, brings peace for everyone. How can any person, how can anyone, Jew, Gentile alike, how can we know peace with God? We can only know it because the Son was destroyed. Because Jesus was killed. Because Jesus was taken out of the city like the Son in the parable. He was taken out of the city and crucified as a criminal, even though he'd done nothing wrong. That's the only way that any of us can know peace with God. That he was crushed for our sins so that we would not be crushed for our sins. He took the penalty for ourself, for our sins upon himself, so that he could open up a new way. 
we have no hope. We will be crushed by this stone. Except that the stone has been crushed for us. How can we, how can anyone be welcomed by Christ? How can, how can anyone keep from being crushed by the cornerstone? It's, it's through faith. Through repentance, through turning from our sin, through trusting in Christ alone, and through submitting to the authority and the lordship of Jesus. We repent of our rejection of the Son. We prevent of our, we repent of our pride. We repent that we have acted like these guys, these tenants who thought they had every right to do whatever they wanted in God's world. And we don't have that right. We have not acted the way that we are supposed to. We repent of our sin. And we put our faith in Christ, in the cornerstone who has been crushed for our sin so that we can know forgiveness. We come in repentance. We come in faith. And then we let Jesus reign. We submit to the authority of Jesus. We say, you are in control of my life now. That's what the tenants should have done. They should have given the fruit of the land. And they should have submitted to the owner. They should have submitted to the son. But in our pride, we reject that. And if you are here today and you continue to reject the rule of Christ, I plead with you, submit to the mercy and the love of God seen in Jesus. Jesus is a rock. He's a rock that will crush us if we don't submit to him. He will crush us if we reject him. But he's the solid rock who will save us if we come to him in faith. I was thinking about the picture of Daniel 2 that Trevor shared with us. Remember the stone that comes? All the kingdoms of the world? That that un, that, that stone of not, not of human hands, it comes and what does it do? It smashes the feet of all the kingdoms of this world and they all come crumbling down. And the stone is Christ. And apart from faith, the stone will come in and it will crush everyone. But if we have faith, the stone becomes not something that will crush us. It becomes the foundation that we build our lives upon. So who is Jesus? Is he the rock that will crush you? Or is he the cornerstone that you will build your life upon? So the question we asked is this. What will happen if we reject the authority of Jesus? What will happen? I think in the meantime right now, God will show us mercy. God continues to show mercy. While there is time, there is there is mercy. But know that there is a time when mercy will not be how he responds. He will ask, what should we will ask what what will the owner of the vineyard do now? And he will he will have every right to destroy. No one in the last day will say that God is unjust. No one will say that he does not have the right to punish those who have rejected his rule. What will happen if we reject the authority of Jesus? We will be crushed. But let me ask another what if. What will happen if we submit to the authority of Jesus? What will happen if you submit to the authority of Jesus? I think what will happen is what we read again in 1 Peter. It, we will become what this says. We will, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, we will be built into a spiritual house. We will become a holy priesthood. We will offer sacrifices acceptable to God. We will become this chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We will become a people for God's own possession to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because once we weren't a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy and we will cleanse our lives as Peter tells us to so that others may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
If we submit to the authority of Jesus, we will be built on the foundation of Christ. We will, we will perform those good deeds that bring pleasure to God. We will submit to Him and walk in the way that He calls us to. And on the last day, we will stand firm on the foundation that is Christ. We will not be crushed by the stone, but we will be upheld by it. Jesus will be a refuge for us. So don't reject the authority of Jesus. Submit to it. That's where life is. Life is found in the mercy of God and in submitting to his rule and reign. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on God's word and then I will close this in prayer. Lord God, we confess our pride. We confess the pride of our lives and we confess the pride of this week, this day, this moment. And we thank you for the mercy that you have shown to us. Lord, you just keep showing more and more grace and more and more patience. Thank you for sending your Son. Lord, for not not running out of patience and not running out of mercy yet, but giving us the opportunity for mercy and for grace now. I pray if there's anyone here who has never bowed their knee to Christ to know the truth of that mercy, that they would do so today. And I pray for each of us, God, that we would see the love that you have for us, and that we would build our lives in submission to you and on the foundation that it is Christ. Thank you that Jesus can be our cornerstone and not a stone of stumbling. Help us to build our lives on him, to willingly submit to his lordship. Lord, we look forward to the day when you will come, when you will crush, rightfully so, all those who have rejected you. You will set up your kingdom built on Christ. forward to that day, God. Help us to live in light of it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.